This mission's important, John. I want you to come with me to help me lead the team. What do you say, John? I put in my time. What's that mean? It means my war's over. He never draws first blood. He only fights back. The first time was for himself. The second time was for his country. This time... Rambo! Something went wrong. It's for his friend. Trumpman was a good man, and I'm really very sorry. You're just leaving him? What do you expect us to do? Send in a Delta team? Create an international incident? What about me? By the way you look, I can see you have no experience in war, do you? I fired a few shots. That if you're captured, we'll deny any participation or even knowledge of your existence. Sounds familiar. Who is this John Rambo? You'll find out. I know he's your friend. <laughs> but you cannot do this. You both will die. For what? Because you do it for me. What do you think this man is? God! Oh, God, will have mercy? Who are you? The worst nightmare. Stallone. Rambo 3. I'm sorry I got you into this, John. Welcome back, friends. Welcome back to the Film Literature in the New World Order series. I'm your host, James Corbett of CorbettReport.com, coming to you on the 22nd of August, 2016. And yes, this month we are tackling Rambo 3, that cinematic masterpiece from director Peter McDonald, starring Sylvester Stallone, in which he reprises his role as Arthur Rambo, I mean, John J. Rambo, this time taking on those damn Ruskies in Afghanistan. John, I'd like you to take a look at some of these photos. I don't know how much you know about Afghanistan. Most people can't even find it on the map. But over two million civilians, mostly peasant farmers and their families, have been systematically slaughtered by invading Russian armies. Every new weapon, including chemical warfare, has been used to eliminate these people. And they've been very successful on many levels. I assume that you're out of touch with the current status of the war. But after nine years of fighting, the Afghan forces are now getting shipments of Stinger missiles and are beginning to hold their own against airstrikes. Except for one region, 50 miles over the border. Apparently the Soviet commander there is exceptionally brutal, as those photos indicate. And he's managed to strangle off all aid from the outside. So, we want to investigate the problem firsthand. What's that got to do with me? They've asked me to go in. You're not going to do it? Yes. And I want you to come with me, John. I put in my time. What's that mean? It means my war's over. Rambo 3. He's back, and this time it's intercontinental. 
Yes, well, as you can imagine, he does go on eventually to accept that mission when uh, Colonel Troutman, his mentor, is captured attempting to do it without him. And the story progresses from there, but as I'm sure my audience does not need to be told, this movie is not uh, not a true story, but is about a real-life event, namely the 1980s Soviet-Afghan War. And, well, that should be from your general knowledge, I would say, but also from episode 16 of the Film Literature New World Order podcast, where we talked about Charlie Wilson's War, an interesting movie to compare and contrast with uh, Rambo 3, and perhaps we will do so later in this episode. But first of all, it is important to stress that this was a movie that was created about and designed specifically to comment on the real-life ongoing events of the Soviet-Afghan War, although <laughs> it did quite just manage to miss the zeitgeist, perhaps, um, coming out in 1988 as the Soviets were beginning their drawdown and withdrawal from Afghanistan as part of the Gorbachev perestroika and all of that that was taking place, the massive changes. So the uh, the Cold War boogeymen were transforming at the time that Rambo 3 was released, so perhaps it just quite missed that window of opportunity. But at any rate, it was important to Sylvester Stallone, the uh, credited as a co-writer on the film, and obviously someone with a lot of creative control over the franchise in general, uh, as a point that he specifically made in promotional interviews that were conducted during the time of the release of Rambo 3. And I wanted to make this Rambo because it's a very serious, true situation in the world uh, that's going on, and it's, it's, it's a very political situation, and I thought that it's, it's a story that should be told, and it's very realistic. And I don't want Rambo to do movies that are not realistic. I want something that's very truthful. Oh, yes, because when I want the hard-hitting, unvarnished truth about what's happening around the world, I turn to... Rambo? No, no, of course not. And I would hope that no one in my audience would do so, but I bet you there is a certain section of the general cinema-going audience who all they ever heard about the Af Soviet-Afghan War came from... Rambo movies and the like, or at the very best, maybe a, a one or two minutes on the evening news here and there. So what kind of hard-hitting truths did this movie reveal about what was really happening in Afghanistan in the 1980s? The Kremlin's got a hell of a sense of humor. Please explain. You talk peace and disarmament to the world, and here you are wiping out a race of people. We are wiping out no one. I think you are too intelligent to believe such absurd propaganda. Now again, where are the missiles? I don't know anything about any missiles. Of course you do. But you do not seem to realize I am providing a way out for us both. You expect sympathy? You started this damn war. Now you have to deal with it. And we will. It is just a matter of time before we achieve a complete victory. <sighs> you know, there won't be a victory. Every day your war machines lose ground to a bunch of poorly armed, poorly equipped freedom fighters. The fact is that you underestimated your competition. If you'd studied your history, you'd know that these people have never given up to anyone. They'd rather die than be slaves to an invading army. You can't defeat a people like that. We tried. We already had our Vietnam. Now you're going to have yours. So, you wish to test me? Good. Well, 
There, in a nutshell, is the patriotic, toe-the-line, ask-no-questions, Hollywood rubber-stamp-of-approval version of the Soviet-Afghan war narrative, as brought to you by Rambo 3, all tied up in a nice little bow for the movie-going audiences in about a minute or so of on-screen time. And that's probably about all that people could sit through as they wait impatiently for the next exploding action scene. Well, uh, what do we make of this truth, this hard-hitting truth that Sylvester Stallone and the writing team for Rambo 3 decided to slip in here? Uh, Well, how many lies or bendings of the truth or lies by omission can you count in just this one-minute clip from the movie? I can count several myself. Uh, Perhaps first and foremost, the entire central conceit here that the Soviets just blindly stumbled into Afghanistan because they are rage-filled monsters that only want to kill innocent civilians and drink on their drink their blood or something along those lines. Uh, there's also the implication, obviously, the U.S. has something to do with these Stinger missiles that are being smuggled in across the Pakistani border to help these untrained and uncoordinated and unsophisticated freedom fighters. Uh, But it's never made explicitly clear that those Stinger missiles were being provided by the auspices of the good old CIA. And then, of course, there is referring to the Afghan Mujahideen unproblematically as freedom fighters, but perhaps we would expect that. Yes, from top to bottom, this truth about the Afghan war is, if not a tissue of outright lies, at least paints a very, very unrealistic portrait of what the Soviet-Afghan war was really about. So in order to understand that history, I would direct people back to my long unfinished documentary on Al-Qaeda Doesn't Exist. U.S. National Security Advisor Brzezinski flew to Pakistan to set about rallying resistance. He wanted to arm the Mujahideen without revealing America's role. On the Afghan border near the Khyber Pass, he urged the soldiers of God to redouble their efforts. We know of their deep belief in God, and we are confident that their struggle will succeed. That land over there is yours. You'll go back to it one day because your fight will prevail and you'll have your homes and your mosques back again because your cause is right and God is on your side. The CIA involvement with the Afghan Mujahideen including an estimated 3 to $20 billion of American taxpayer money that was spent by the U.S. to train and equip them, has been known and acknowledged for years. The operation was part of a Cold War gambit to bog down the Red Army in what was to become the Soviet Union's own Vietnam. An unending struggle to occupy a country against a determined, and, thanks to the CIA, well-funded and trained guerrilla resistance. We must recognize the strategic importance of Afghanistan to stability and peace. A Soviet-occupied Afghanistan threatens both Iran and Pakistan and is a stepping stone to possible control over much of the world's oil supplies. The scheme, known as Operation Cyclone, was in fact an amazing success.
the years of guerrilla fighting and thousands of deaths demoralized the Red Army, drained the resources of an already overstrained CCCP, and emboldened citizens in other Soviet satellites to throw off the yoke of communist repression. The Red Army retreated from Afghanistan in 1989, and the Soviet Union fell shortly thereafter. What is hardly ever acknowledged, however, is that the CIA involvement with the Mujahideen did not start after the Soviets entered Afghanistan, but before the invasion took place. This startling admission came directly from Brzezinski himself, who stated in a 1998 interview with a French periodical, According to the official version of history, CIA aid to the Mujahideen began during 1980, that is to say, after the Soviet army invaded Afghanistan, 24th of December 1979. But the reality, secretly guarded until now, is completely otherwise. Indeed, it was July 3rd, 1979, that President Carter signed the first directive for secret aid to the opponents of the pro-Soviet regime in Kabul. And that very day, I wrote a note to the president in which I explained to him that in my opinion this aid was going to induce a Soviet military intervention. This is an important point. What it means is that the CIA did not merely take a pre-existing movement of freedom fighters and aid them in their fight against the Soviets. What it means is that Western intelligence actively recruited Islamist extremists for the express purpose of provocateuring the Soviets into invading. By Brzezinski's own admission, if these Mujahideen had not been fostered by the CIA, the Soviets may never have invaded Afghanistan in the first place. In a very real sense, then, Brzezinski and the U.S. government fostered an extremist element of militant Islamists and helped form them into an effective fighting force. It was from the ranks of these Afghan Mujahideen that another group was to emerge, composed mostly of so-called Arab Afghans, or foreign fighters, who came to Afghanistan to take up the jihad against the Soviets. The expulsion of the Soviets from Afghanistan was to be just the first of their battles, and after the Red Army left, their attention was to turn elsewhere. Of course, the geopolitics of the era required that the U.S. not be directly implicated in funding and trading the Mujahideen. Domestically, Americans would have been outraged had they been aware that they were footing the bill for training and equipping Islamic militants. And internationally, if the Soviets knew the extent of the CIA involvement in the region, it could have brought the two superpowers to the brink of World War III. Consequently, the training, arming, and funding of the Mujahideen was run through a series of fronts and compartmentalized so that not even those supposedly directing the operation knew its full extent. The official story is that U.S. funding, arms, and training went exclusively to the Afghanis, with the money for the foreign jihadists, or so-called Arab Afghans from which Al-Qaeda would spring, coming from the Saudis. The facts on the ground, however, tell a very different story. Within this group of Arab Afghans was an even smaller group centered around Osama bin Laden, a Saudi-born heir to the bin Laden family construction fortune. In Afghanistan in the late 1980s, 
His group consisted of about a dozen people. This group was known as Al-Qaeda, or so we are led to believe. Bin Laden himself claimed in his last authenticated interview in late 2001 that the name came from Abu Abaydah al-Banashiri, one of his accomplices in establishing the training camps in Afghanistan. Strange, then, that four years later, after the 7-7 bombings in London in 2005, Robin Cook, the former leader of the House of Parliament in the UK, would write an article for the London Guardian in which he claimed Al-Qaeda, in English, the base, literally referred to the database of Mujahideen who were being handled by the CIA in Afghanistan. Some researchers have even noted that Al-Qaeda is a slang term for the toilet in Arabic, hardly a name for a shadowy global terrorist organization. Regardless of how the group got its name, the fact is that this small group of militants were nurtured with the Afghan Mujahideen by the CIA at the behest of Zbigniew Brzezinski. There is evidence of direct U.S. involvement with Osama bin Laden and the hardline Arab militants in all three areas of Operation Cyclone, including funding, training, and arming the Arab Afghans. The startling truth, according to the sworn testimony of Michael Springman, an official at the Jeddah Consulate during this period, is that not only was the CIA providing training to bin Laden and his operatives, but that bin Laden was, in fact, a CIA asset, and the agency was rubber-stamping visas for his operatives to go to the U.S. for training. And I had been told that this was a visa scam, and it certainly seemed that way to me. I was told, well, who needs the money? And the price, supposedly, for these visas was $2,500. And it was, you know... You know, the king's barber's servant uh, to get a visa. Uh, Frere's was seen filling out visa applications for people in the consulate. Uh, it was just absolutely incomprehensible to me. And people I talked to who had been there uh, really didn't want to say much more about it. And it wasn't until I was out of the Foreign Service when my appointment had been terminated for unspecified reasons that I learned from three good sources. Joe Trento, the journalist, uh, a fellow attached to a university in Washington, D.C., and a guy with expert knowledge on the Middle East who had worked for a government agency. They said, it's very simple. The CIA and its asset Osama bin Laden were recruiting terrorists for the Afghan war. They were sending them to the United States for training, for rewards, for whatever purpose, and then sending them on to Afghanistan, and most likely the problems they had with the liquor at the consulate, uh, large amounts of it disappearing, it being sold at very high markups, uh, and so forth, was being used to fund this. Perhaps not coincidentally, the U.S. consulate in Jeddah, from which the CIA was smuggling operatives for bin Laden in the 80s, was the very consulate from which 11 of the 9-11 hijackers were to receive visas to enter the U.S., many of them using a special fast-track program called Visa Express, which only began four months before 9-11. 
Likewise, evidence links the CIA and bin Laden through arms sales. The suggestion that bin Laden was a customer for CIA arms has been repeated by Der Spiegel, BBC, and many other mainstream media sources. But in Simon Reeves' 1999 book, The New Jackals, one CIA source is quoted as saying that U.S. agents armed bin Laden's men by letting him pay rock-bottom prices for basic weapons. Incredibly, the funding for the Afghan operation also connects the U.S. to Osama. The U.S. provided the funding for the operation to the ISI, the Pakistani Inter-Services Intelligence, which worked closely with the CIA. In turn, the ISI, in cooperation with the CIA, distributed these funds to the Afghan Mujahideen through a front organization known as MAK, or the Bureau of Services. And one of the key men involved in arranging the finances of MAK, Osama bin Laden. After the Soviet withdrawal, Osama would take control of the organization, and it would become the base of what we now know as Al-Qaeda. In fact, the CIA, through their Pakistani proxies in the ISI, not only funded, armed, and trained Osama bin Laden, but helped spur poppy cultivation to record levels in Afghanistan in an attempt to get the Soviet troops addicted to heroin. And they created the Taliban, the hardline fundamentalist group that would take control of Afghanistan after the Soviets withdrew. And the Taliban government would become the only government in the world willing to harbor Osama bin Laden from 1996 onwards. The simple fact is that U.S. involvement in Afghanistan from 1979 onwards implicates them in the founding, funding, and training of Osama bin Laden and other hardline militant Islamists. And as we shall see, the ties extend much further into the 90s and beyond. But what does Brzezinski, one of Obama's top advisors, think about this? Does he, in retrospect, admit the danger in having nurtured Al-Qaeda and the Taliban into existence? Does he regret American involvement in the region? In his 1998 interview with Le Nouvel Observateur, he stated, What is most important to the history of the world, the Taliban or the collapse of the Soviet Empire? Some stirred-up Muslims or the liberation of Central Europe and the end of the Cold War? You know, I should actually finish that documentary someday and just surprise everyone. But I'm just musing out loud. I make no promises. No promises. Uh, Well, there you have it. I hope a more nuanced and historically accurate version of the Soviet-Afghan War from the very beginnings where the U.S. deliberately attempted to and succeeded in drawing the Soviets into Afghanistan in the first place and then bogged them down there by training and arming and equipping the Mujahideen from the very beginning. And then you have Brzezinski laughing about it all and gloating about it all in the end. Oh, yes, yes, we did it. And, oh, it was so great. We brought down the Soviets and wrested control of Central Asia. And what do we have to show for it? A few stirred-up Muslims. Haha, <laughs> what are they going to do about it? So there's uh, the counter-narrative to the rather simplistic narrative presented in Rambo 3. And, yes, it does lead through Osama bin Laden and the creation of al-Qaeda and MAK and all of that, the Arab Afghans, and the whole big story there. But of course, people go to Rambo 3 for popcorn entertainment. They do not go for a big, long 
complicated deep state history lesson. So in that sense, I think mission accomplished for Rambo 3. They provide the massive amount of explosions and deaths. In fact, I believe uh, the 1990 Guinness Book of World Records actually had Rambo 3 as the most violent movie ever made with something like 108 on-screen deaths and 276 separate acts of violence. jam-packed into 90 minutes. Uh, So people get that, and yeah, they get a minute or two of narrative that's just enough to give them that rah-rah sense of American exceptionalist patriotic nonsense, the one American warrior taking on the Ruskies and winning, uh, and making everyone feel good as they leave the theater. And again, in that sense, mission accomplished. But I think Rambo 3 is an interesting example of propaganda, perhaps a different example of propaganda than we are used to examining here on this podcast. Because while we're generally looking at movies that have some sort of specific and and identifiable DOD or CIA or other government participation or some shadowy player in the in the cabal somehow, you know, involved with the project. In this case, I can't find a shred of evidence of any such involvement. No official DOD involvement, no official CIA Hollywood liaison or anything of that sort. Uh, I might be wrong about that. If I am, if you have evidence of such involvement, please do present it. I'd be interested to see that. But I don't believe that that is the case. And it actually strikes me that that probably isn't the case with an, ex- uh, an example of crude propaganda like Rambo 3, because this is not like that type of propaganda, like a Charlie Wilson's War, which is clearly crafted propaganda to present a certain view of history, specifically to influence people's perception of that history in a certain way, because it, infl- it it's beneficial to the CIA's interests or whatever. This is a different example. I, I would call this second-order propaganda, because this is the type of story that I could imagine someone who is simply taking in the nightly news, reading the newspapers, staying relatively, quote-unquote, well-informed by the media mouthpieces about what's going on in Afghanistan, what this war is about. This is the type of story someone who was imbibing that media would regurgitate uh, as the kind of simplified, here-it-is-in-a-nutshell lesson that we could take away from what's happening in Afghanistan. Uh, And that's, in some ways, maybe even more insidious than having a CIA spook overseeing the production and, you know, being the guiding hand behind what's really happening there, uh, an enemy of the state or Charlie Wilson's war or some some overt piece of propaganda like that. Because that means the propaganda has been so effective that it has been completely internalized. Okay, so there's these Mujahideen and they're they're the freedom fighters and they're being overrun by these sadistic uh, Ruskies who just want to kill innocent civilians and of course, America's the good guys. They just, their only interest in going into Afghanistan is because innocent people are dying. And so America has to be there to save the day. There you go. And that is exactly what the propagandists want people to internalize. And then people who are the, the, the story writers, the creators, the artists take that propaganda as their background and then regurgitate a story like this one out of it. It is second-order propaganda. It's regurgitated propaganda. Um, it, again, it's effective. It's it's even in some ways more effective because it has been so thoroughly and completely internalized and digested and become a fabric of uh, the culture and, and the zeitgeist at that point. So, again, this is propaganda um, and obviously over, ridiculously oversimplified. And yes, of course, the audience, I, I think, pretty much understands that. But still, it has that effect. And when 
the vast majority of the movie-going audience would probably, again, only know or think about the Soviet-Afghan war in terms of Hollywood representations of it, like in Rambo 3. But having said all of that, perhaps there are some truths that are revealed uh, through Rambo 3 about Afghan Afghanistan and the history and what the war was kind of about in the bigger sense. Uh, perhaps unwittingly revealed by the movie, but revealed nonetheless. And particularly ironic in this age of the, well, now into the 15th year of NATO occupation or military assistance, security assistance of Afghanistan. So let's take an example from Rambo 3 again, where we have this clip where uh, uh, Sylvester Stallone, John J. Rambo, and his guide are crossing through, uh, crossing from Pakistan into Afghanistan on their way to the Mujahideen village where they're going to meet up and start their plan to rescue Colonel Troutman. And his guide takes a moment to wax philosophical about Afghanistan. This is Afghanistan. Alexander the Great tried to conquer this country. Then Genghis Khan, then the British. Now Russia. But Afghan people fight hard. They never be defeated. Ancient enemy, make prayer about these people. You wish to hear? Mm. Very good. It says, May God deliver us from the venom of the cobra, teeth of the tiger, and the vengeance of the Afghan. You understand what this means? That you guys don't take it. Yes. Something like this. Yes, the movie does point out, and I think quite rightly, uh, that the Afghan people are people who care about their country and will stand up to outside would-be conquerors and have done so in the past for centuries, if not millennia, going back to Alexander the Great and Genghis Khan all the way to the British and then the Russians, and that this was a a sign of honor and courage and bravery and the fighting spirit that American audiences could identify with, with these brave Mujahideen that were the good guys in the 1980s and was being lauded here on the screen, which makes it all that much more ironic that here now we are sitting into the 15th year of invasion and occupation and military security partnership by NATO of the Afghan people and think about those portrayals of the Afghan people standing up against the outside powers contrasted to the news of events happening in the country right now. Ashraf Ghani arriving for talks with NATO leaders. Many Afghans hoped he would be the president to bring peace to their nation. But Afghanistan's security situation is deteriorating. That's why the alliance today reiterated its lasting commitment to the region. The reason why NATO is in Afghanistan is to prevent Afghanistan uh, from becoming a safe haven for international terrorists. NATO ended its combat operations in the country in 2014. Since then, around 12,500 soldiers from NATO member countries, including Germany, have been involved in the alliance's military training mission in Afghanistan. The operation costs about 4.5 billion euros a year, with the US footing the largest share of the bill. 
At the Warsaw summit, NATO leaders promised to continue supporting the country's security forces. So our message is clear. Afghanistan does not stand alone and we are committed for the long haul. It's welcome news for the delegation from Afghanistan. This support is needed because the war in Afghanistan is not a civil war and it's a threat for the region and for the world. And we are happy that we have our allies beside us to fight the common enemy. Afghanistan remains a clear focus for the transatlantic alliance alongside renewed emphasis on boosting defence in Eastern Europe and the Baltic states. Ah, yes, it's interesting how things turn full circle. And if you are a creative sort out there in La La Land in Hollywood, attempting to faithfully regurgitate the propaganda that you have been fed, it's interesting to see how that will come around and bite you in the posterior if the events of the real world tend to overtake the nice little narrative that you've been sold, the bill of goods that you've been sold about what your country is so valiantly doing in another country. And that's exactly what has happened to Rambo 3. So it has to be seen in this day and age in the ultimate ironic sense of watching a story about the brave people of a country standing up against an evil invading occupying power. And here we are with an evil invading occupying power uh, that is uh, being resisted by the Afghans in various different ways. And of course, there are all sorts of other considerations that go into that mix. But again, that's, I think, the context in which we watch this film in 2016. And as a particularly deliciously ironic part of all of this, you can look at the end dedication of this movie. And if you watch this movie by a DVD or whatever, however you watched it, I'm sure you saw at the end, this film is dedicated to the gallant people of Afghanistan. All right, innocuous enough, and that that fits equally as today as it would have back in the time of the making of this movie, except that is not what audiences who were in the theater watching this original theatrical edition of this movie saw. They saw a slightly different dedication, namely... This film is dedicated to the brave Mujahideen fighters of Afghanistan. In the mere months or one year or whatever it was that it took for this movie to go from the theaters to VHS, they had already realized the U.S. was backing away from the Mujahideen. They were getting, they were extricating themselves from Afghanistan and leaving these uh, stirred up Muslims so that they've armed to the teeth to sort out their dis differences themselves and well, he started to get the Taliban and all of this craziness, the movie makers already understood that their nicely regurgitated propaganda was already starting to turn on them. So they changed the dedication at the end of the film. I'll put the screenshots of both of those dedications in the show notes for this edition of FLNWO so you can go and take a look at them. But I thought that was, uh, again, particularly ironic and... Uh, well, there you go. We're, we've never been at war with East Asia. We were always at war with East Asia. Well, I'll be interested to hear your guys' take on Rambo 3, but specifically on this idea of second-order propaganda, of propaganda that's been regurgitated rather than directed from the outside. Is this really more ominous? Can you think of other examples of this regurgitated propaganda? And how does that affect the people who are hearing it? It's like hearing propaganda 
after propaganda, the echo of propaganda. And by that point, I imagine it's almost inescapable for the average person without doing actual research to ever escape that propaganda echo chamber. But perhaps, again, events in the real world overtake these cinematic representations and the audience that saw Rambo 3 and took it unproblematically in 1988 could not sit down and watch that movie with the same unproblematic reading that in 2016 and maybe that's a sign of well if not progress at least a sign that even the uh, best laid propaganda will uh, ultimately crumble upon itself some heady thoughts from a very silly movie but i hope some food for thought and some fodder for discussion speaking of discussion let's as we customarily do here on the flnwo podcast turn back to the last edition of this podcast for your comments from last time, where we were talking to Peter Dale Scott about the poetry of his father, F.R. Scott, which, as you'll remember, took a very interesting turn as during the conversation with Peter Dale Scott, that again, unfortunately, did have some Skype problems, but it uh, it started to become quite evident that F.R. Scott was much more tuned into and a part of, in some way, the deep state that Peter Dale Scott has made his life's work in exposing. So that was a very interesting, to me, podcast, but I think Orenda Review puts it quite nicely in the comments section. James, very interesting episode. Thank you. It was much too short for all the lines of inquiry you broached, and I think that is very much the case, but that, again, is part of uh, a reflection of the fact that that was a podcast that kind of surprised me, and uh, I was just sitting there trying to interpret what I was hearing. So I really do hope one day, uh, eventually, to be able to record with Peter Dale Scott in person so that we don't have to deal with those Skype bugaboos. And interestingly enough, uh, Peter indicates to me that this is something that is very common Uh, Not on his personal Skype calls when he's just talking to friends or family, but always, always when he's giving an important interview or an important important Skype speech, uh, teleconferencing into some uh, conference, it will always, there will always be Skype problems. So I'm not one generally to blame technical difficulties on shadowy forces, but hmm, one wonders at times like that. Anyway, all of that aside, uh, again, there were some good comments in from last uh, time flying dutchman 33 um, noting at the end of rambo 3 that dedication that i just talked about uh, voltaic dude had a, a post um talking about the uh, the uh, the conversation in general but honing in on uh, peter dale scott's talking about occupy towards the end of the uh, the podcast there and then no soap radio has an interesting three-part comment where no soap radio breaks down Peter Dale Scott and uh, his, uh, well, first of all, the Occupy movement and its an analogy to the war, anti-war movement, and then talking about uh, P.D. Scott and affiliation to people like uh, Daniel Ellsberg, who's questionable himself, um, and pointing to the work of Douglas Valentine, who, of course, I have interviewed here on the podcast before. So an interesting series of comments there from No Soap Radio that I'll just invite you to go and read through yourself. And then we had Gree <laughs> at the end saying, Rambo 3? Uh, oh, that's the one I fell asleep two years ago. Woke up in time to see Rambo killing Ruskins. Very well, I'll try it again. No promises. Well, I hope, Bigri, if you did at least, if you didn't make it through that, you at least made it through this podcast. And once again, I am looking forward to your feedback on this podcast. That's going to do it for this month. But as always, before we go, let's give you your homework for next month. FLNWO number 38, released in September, is going to be on the movie The Purge, Election Year. Happy viewing! 
See you next month.